Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for women living with advanced ovarian cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in observance of Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, it's a conversation about gynecologic oncology with Dr. Gloria Huang. Dr. Huang is an associate professor of gynecologic oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an assistant professor of surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. Gloria, let's start by talking about ovarian cancer. I think that a lot of people kind of know a little bit about it, but not a lot. So let's start by laying the groundwork. What exactly is ovarian cancer? How common is it? And what should people really know? Yes, ovarian cancer is one of the cancers that we treat as GYN oncologists, so cancers that arise from the female reproductive tract. What's interesting is that ovarian cancer actually encompasses a number of different diseases. So it is a very heterogeneous group of diseases that fall under the umbrella of ovarian cancer. So, of course, we treat the cancers according to the type of disease it is. Now, ovarian cancer, so that refers to tumors and cancers that arise from the ovary, generally speaking, um, is one of the less common GYN cancers. And in general, women in the United States have about a 1% to 1.5% risk of developing ovarian cancer in their lifetime. However, ovarian cancer is one of the more difficult to treat cancers if detected at a later stage. Something interesting about ovarian cancer, as I said, it's actually an umbrella term that encompasses many different diseases, is that some ovarian cancers, actually one of the common types, arises from the fallopian tubes, but it tends to seed onto the ovary and grow into a mass on the ovary, which is why it's uh, recognized as an ovarian cancer. Other ovarian cancers, interestingly, actually may arise from endometriosis implants on the ovary. So these are tissues that originate most likely from the endometrium, that is the uterine cavity, implant on the ovary or peritoneal pelvic surfaces and can grow into a malignancy. So those are some of the etiologies of some of the ovarian cancers that we encounter. So one of the things that you mentioned was that ovarian cancer is really difficult to treat if picked up late. But before we even get to that, let's talk about whether there is anything that people can do to prevent themselves from getting ovarian cancer, period. Is there any primary prevention, anything that people can do to reduce their risk, maybe eating or not eating particular foods, smoking, drinking, environmental risk factors? What are the risks uh, and the risk factors for developing ovarian cancer? And are there is there anything that people can do to reduce their risk, short of just hoping and praying that they don't get ovarian cancer? Well, that's a great question. First of all, one of the factors that can greatly increase a woman's chance of developing ovarian cancer is actually if she was born with 
a genetic change that increases her risk of ovarian cancer. So you may have heard of BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations. So these are risks that can be passed down from the mother to the baby or from the father to the baby. And you could be born with an increased risk of developing ovarian cancer in your lifetime. Now, the good thing is that there are very accurate tests to determine if your DNA has a change in the BRCA1 or 2 or some related genes that have a similar um, risk. So this is what is very important is to um, first of all, if there's a, a family member who's had ovarian cancer or breast cancer, those are um, things that to be aware of to figure out um, in your family history if there is a sign of perhaps a hereditary risk. Um, if that is the case, first of all, the affected patient, you know, if, if your mother had ovarian cancer, your mother should be tested for um, a, a genetic predisposition. So this is something that is a very important message is that any patient who's newly diagnosed with ovarian cancer, we strongly encourage patients to have genetic testing. And that is because patients with ovarian cancer, even without any family history of cancer, could have up to 20% risk of carrying a genetic risk. And so this is very important for themselves to know for um, prevention of other cancers, as well as for their family members to know what they may be um, needing to be tested for. So any patient who has a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer should ideally see a genetic counselor and have testing for um, a genetic risk factor. Patients who, um, women who have family members with uh, uh, having a cancer history should also see a genetic counselor for genetic testing. We have very effective ways of decreasing risk of ovarian cancer for patients at increased risk. And so if you are, let's suppose you, you know that you have a BRCA mutation that runs in your family, you were tested, you haven't developed ovarian cancer yet. For some patients, they may feel like that may just be a ticking time bomb that tells them that they're at increased risk. What can they do to prevent ovarian cancer in that situation? And when should they be doing that? Right. So these are great questions, too. Um, in general, things that generally lower cancer risk that everyone should do, including those who are at increased risk, are physical activity, exercise, trying to maintain a healthy body weight, um, having excess body weight, and which can lead to imbalance of hormones, higher estrogen levels, higher insulin levels, can actually increase the risk of many cancers, not just gynecological cancers. Um, so that's something um, I also encourage patients to eat plenty of vegetables and fruits. Now, in terms of specifically patients who are at high risk of developing ovarian cancer, we do offer monitoring, but fortunately, the risk of developing ovarian cancer, even at those at high risk, typically doesn't develop until later in the reproductive years. So patients can um, be assured that they have time to uh, complete their uh, families as if they desire children. And um, there are also, uh, we can work closely with reproductive specialists as well to ensure that they are able to successfully create their families and also um, to offer um, 
uh, counseling regarding your families as well. So let's mm-hmm. let's unpack that a little bit. What does the screening involve for these patients who are at high risk? So in terms of ovarian cancer screening, we don't have a perfect test for screening yet. Some things that patients may hear about are ultrasound, transvaginal ultrasound, which is basically um, a it's a very low risk. There's no radiation involved. An ultrasound probe um, that's able to be placed in the vagina, you can actually get a usually a very good view of the ovaries. And um, during reproductive age, it's normal to have small, simple, fluid-filled cysts that come and go. Um, however, if cysts are getting larger or have solid components, um, they may be more worrisome. Um, the other test that people talk about, which is, again, on its own, not a very accurate test, which is a CA125 blood test, is something that is useful for monitoring to patients who um, have a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, but is not a very effective screening test on its own. There are a number of prospective studies, and what we've learned from these studies is that looking at the change in CA125 over time is more accurate than a single snapshot of the blood test. So how often, if you have somebody who is, let's say, a BRCA mutation carrier and who wants to complete her family mm-hmm. uh, and you want to screen her uh, because she's clearly at increased risk of developing ovarian cancer, how often would you do a transvaginal ultrasound and a CA125? Me personally, I like to see patients twice a year for an assessment of any change in symptoms, examination, and then on an individualized basis, blood test and or ultrasound. But this is something that we are actually active investigating, actively investigating what might be more effective ways for screening or early detection. Because as we, as we talked about, we don't have a perfect test right now. Yeah, so clearly there's a need to develop that. And I know that especially with cancers where it's really hard to treat at a late stage, we really want to focus on trying to find those cancers early. Now, let's suppose you have a patient who is a BRCA mutation carrier but has completed her family. Is removing her ovaries uh, an option uh, that she should consider to reduce her risk? And if so, what about the other cancer types that fall under the umbrella of ovarian cancer, you talked about cancers that arise from the fallopian tubes. Should those be removed? Uh, what about endometriosis uh, and endometrial deposits, peritoneal surfaces? How does all of that work? Yes. So for patients having preventative surgery, prophylactic surgery, it's essential that not just the ovaries but the fallopian tubes are removed and that the removal of the tubes and ovaries will greatly reduce the risk of developing ovarian cancer. Um, Often we do offer patients a preventative hysterectomy as well um, because endometrial cancer is in the general population a relatively more common cancer. About one in 35 um, U.S. women will develop endometrial cancer in their lifetime, and that's just in terms of the general population. Again, some things that can reduce endometrial cancer risk are, again, maintaining a healthy weight and physical activity. 
Um, removing the uterus also can simplify the regimen if a patient uh, requires um, hormone replacement for some time. And so uh, for patients who are premenopausal, mm-hmm. who are undergoing um, a prophylactic uh, oophorectomy or removing their ovaries and their fallopian tubes to prevent ovarian cancer, um, that then puts them into menopause, right? And so you would you would prescribe hormone replacement therapy, is that right? So yes, removing the ovaries in a premenopausal woman would lead to a decrease in the estrogen produced. Um, now, even after me- natural menopause or surgical menopause, the amount of female hormone in the body is not zero because actually um, estrogen is produced in the fat cells of the body by conversion of adrenal hormones. So it's not as though there's complete absence of estrogen. Um, So hormone replacement therapy, is that something that women should take after a prophylactic oophorectomy or is it something that they should avoid? Because, you know, a lot of women may have questions about hormone replacement therapy, especially as they hear things like uh, the fact that it increases breast cancer risk. Right. So it's very important to have a coordinated and um, whole person approach to the hormone replacement therapy. So patients who are known to carry uh, BRCA1 or 2 mutations, I typically manage together with a breast specialist. And so that uh, whether or not the patient um, is on hormone replacement therapy and uh, what regimen will depend on many factors, such as whether they've had prophylactic mastectomy, um, to prevent breast cancer, and also uh, the regimen will depend on whether or not they have retained their uterus or not. So it's definitely individualized. Perfect. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute and then learn a whole bunch more about gynecologic cancers, especially ovarian cancers. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. We're talking about gynecologic cancers and specifically ovarian cancers, along with options for women. Now, before the break, we spent a lot of time talking about ovarian cancer and touching a little bit on prevention 
Obviously, the good things to do are the good things to do always. Maintain a healthy body weight, exercise, eat right. Um, And we talked a little bit about genetics and some of the prophylactic surgeries that people can have to reduce their ovarian cancer risk if they are at genetically high risk. But Gloria, some people are going to be diagnosed with ovarian cancer who may not have a genetic predisposition, who may just present with ovarian cancer. So let's start there. You said that ovarian cancers are really difficult to treat when diagnosed at a late stage. So what are the symptoms that women should be paying attention to that may prompt them to seek help? Um, Because certainly not all women are going to have screening on a regular basis for ovarian cancer. Yes. So Ovarian cancer can present with symptoms that are somewhat vague in nature, but what's important is that symptoms that are persistent and uh, severe are things that should prompt a doctor's visit to your gynecologist. So for example, abdominal bloating, well, we all feel bloated from time to time. And if you feel bloated one day and you feel fine the next, it's not as concerning as if you have persistent abdominal bloating and increased in your waist size, which progressively worsens over time. So I always tell patients if they have persistent symptoms every day for about two weeks of the month or more, that should prompt a a doctor's visit. And so given the fact that, you know, unlike, for example, breast cancer or colon cancer, where there is a screening test, are most ovarian cancers caught late? So the -the run-of-the-mill type of ovarian cancer, the most common uh, types, epithelial ovarian cancers, are often detected at a stage three or four where there has been some spread of, of cancerous cells to other parts of the pelvis or abdomen. Um, so that, yes. So one of the ways that patients sometimes present is having a distended abdomen because fluid can collect um, in the abdomen, which we call ascites. Mm. And so that's, that's unfortunate. And so really, until we come up with better screening tests that uh, are able to detect cancers early um, and are part of routine health maintenance, I suppose that that's always going to be the case. Is that right? Well, at this time, yes. But at the other hand, I think we are also at the same time developing more effective treatments for ovarian cancer and advanced ovarian cancer and also making those treatments, including surgery, less toxic. So let's talk about that. Let's suppose somebody did have abdominal bloating and they go to see their family physician or their gynecologist. How is a diagnosis of ovarian cancer made? Because you can imagine that having abdominal bloating could be due to many, many different things, uh, from gastrointestinal problems to, uh, you know, all kinds of issues. How, How do you actually make the diagnosis of ovarian cancer? Well, besides the history of symptoms, The examination is an important part. As I said, often a patient might have abdominal distension. A pelvic exam might reveal enlarged ovaries, masses on the ovaries. Um, Another type of exam that we often do in the GYN office is a rectovaginal exam to feel the surfaces behind the uterus, which could reveal nodularity in that area called the cul-de-sac. And um, so those were th- are things that would prompt further evaluation should they be detected on exam. Um, some ways that 
an adnexal or ovarian mass would be further uh, studied is to do, as I mentioned, a transvaginal ultrasound to determine if it's a simple cyst or a solid mass. And then if we're suspecting a possible ovarian cancer, I would typically order a CT scan, a CAT scan, and that would allow me to evaluate um, the upper abdomen and other surfaces and lymph nodes and help with the planning for the optimal treatment. And so if you find something, a, a solid mass on an ovary on transvaginal ultrasound or CT, does that automatically cinch the diagnosis of ovarian cancer? Or do you still need a biopsy? And how does that happen? Yes, that's a great question. So even in women at higher risk, which are postmenopausal older women, even a concerning looking mass on transvaginal ultrasound has a 90% chance of being benign. But often the best way to determine that is by removing the ovary surgically. Mm. Um, we don't like to do a biopsy because that could theoretically release malignant cells into the surrounding pelvis or abdomen. So the best way to determine the nature of a suspicious or concerning mass usually is through a minimally invasive surgical approach, laparoscopy, and um, removal of the ovary and attached tube. Um, typically, the pathologist can actually take a look during the surgery and get a, an immediate impression, which is called a frozen section, and that'll give us a good idea if, if the mass is benign or malignant. And if on frozen section this turns out to be malignant, what happens then? So it's very important. The surgical management of ovarian cancer is a critical factor in optimizing the best possible outcome for the patient and their cancer. So um, it's just really important for patients to have their surgery done by a specialist in GYN cancer and ovarian cancer, and that would be a gynecologic oncologist. And the reason is that, first of all, it's critical to know the extent of spread of the cancer called staging, and that is assessed surgically. And also, it's very important to reduce the tumor, uh, remove and resect visible tumor, and that's called tumor debulking or cytoreduction. And we know that this can really impact how well a patient does. And so it's so critical for patients to be under the care of a gynecological oncologist for their surgery for ovarian cancer. And so if they, they're under the care of a, a qualified gynecologic oncologist, the surgeon removes the ovary, sends it to the pathologist, the pathologist does one of these quick frozen sections and typically will call the surgeon, right, in the operating room and say, I, I think this is malignant. Would the surgeon then go ahead and do this debulking and the staging all at the same time? And what does that involve exactly? Right. Again, it is individualized to the patient. So if I were highly suspecting a possible malignancy before surgery, I would have counseled the patient about in the event that cancer is found, um, how should we proceed? And, um, and also, if it's a younger patient, what their fertility desires are. Um, the good news is for younger patients who desire to um, maintain their fertility, for certain types of ovarian cancers, we, we can 
uh, maintain their fertility by maintaining a normal ovary and uterus without affecting their future fertility. Again, that's individualized, but that's something that we frequently do. Um, for older patients, typically the surgery for ovarian cancer does remove both tubes and ovaries, the uterus, as well as um, removing this fatty tissue called the omentum, where sometimes the cancerous cells tend to hone into an implant, um, and then checking the lymph nodes as well for spread, which sometimes is difficult to detect on CT scan. And so, and so the surgery sounds like it could be quite extensive. Um, and you mentioned that most ovarian cancers are diagnosed as stage three or stage four. In many other cancers, there's this multidisciplinary approach, especially with stage four cancers, which have typically spread outside of the origin of the cancer itself um, because it requires more systemic therapy. So some sort of medicine, chemotherapy, endocrine therapy, immunotherapy, all kinds of therapy that people can put into the bloodstream to fight cancer wherever it is. Is the same thing true in ovarian cancer and how is that multidisciplinary approach managed? Absolutely. So um, for advanced ovarian cancer, chemotherapy is an important part of the treatment. And as you said, by giving drugs systemically that can eliminate microscopic disease that could be in the abdomen or other areas. What's interesting is that ovarian cancer tends to be quite sensitive to chemotherapy. So between surgery and first-line chemotherapy, we're actually very successful at achieving a clinical remission, a complete response to therapy in the majority of patients, even with stage three and four disease. However, these patients are very high risk for recurrence. Mm -hmm. So meaning that there are there's undetectable um, cells that can recur and develop into recurrent cancers. So actually, what we, is there's a lot of uh, investigation and we're doing clinical trials that we're enrolling patients into, which would offer patients, besides standard surgery and chemotherapy, the addition of a targeted therapy or immunotherapy to decrease the risk of having a recurrence. And the one mode of therapy that we haven't really mentioned is radiation. Does radiation play a role in ovarian cancer? For run-of-the-mill ovarian cancer, um, it's not as commonly used. There are some select instances where it can be useful, but not so commonly used for run-of-the-mill types of ovarian cancer. And one can imagine why that would be the case because, you know, in the abdomen, there's lots of other things there that you wouldn't want to damage with uh, radiation. And it sounds like the at least the initial outcomes with chemotherapy and surgery are quite good. But this idea of relapse uh, is, is something that I think a lot of patients may be concerned about. So tell me more about the prognosis of ovarian cancer. If you're diagnosed with ovarian cancer, uh, stage three or four, which is the majority of cases that you see, that's treated with surgery and chemotherapy, how often do those patients recur, and what's their survival rate like? Sure. Well, um, the chance again, I can say the chance of recurrence, but it, it's very individualized. So, you know, of course, we all have patients who don't recur at all, and and so giving a number like a five-year 
what percent of patients may or may not recur may not be so meaningful for the individual patient. Granted. So some patients may never recur, some patients after many years, and some patients who are not as responsive to chemotherapy, they may recur earlier. So there's a huge range of possible outcomes. And um, as I said, every patient and their cancer is different. Um, and what was your question again? So having said that, however, mm-hmm. you know, an individual patient is looking at their life and wondering, well, what's the average? I mean, what's the average prognosis? Should this be something that I should really be starting to put my house in order and write a will and make sure that my kids are taken care of? Or is this something that I have, you know, on average, a prolonged life expectancy such that when you talk about fertility, um, that I can plan a family, that um, I can live for a number of years uh, with my ovarian cancer, albeit relapsing perhaps intermittently. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you tell patients when they ask you about average prognosis, understanding your caveat, which is well taken, which is that it's an individual disease for any given patient? Yes. So again, uh, I hate to make generalizations because there are so many different types of ovarian cancer and so many different factors. Um, So, but yes, patients who have advanced ovarian cancer are at high risk. Uh, I would say more than half will recur at some point. The um, length of time of the disease-free interval that they're doing great without signs of cancer is a factor that we look at. And because uh, a shorter time until recurrence may indicate that the tumor cells are not as sensitive to chemotherapy. So that's something that we consider as we optimize and develop the strategy for treating the recurrence. Dr. Gloria Huang is an associate professor of gynecologic oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.